You talk about trauma. Today, if such a thing happened, it would be called a lawsuit, uh, which gets people asking, did that really happen? You must be making it up, and it's an urban legend. Robin Washington is an American journalist who's worked for newspapers in Boston and Duluth, Minnesota, and also for NPR. In addition, he's made several documentaries about the civil rights movement and the lives of Black Americans, including the PBS film You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow and Vermont, the Whitest State in the Union. In 1995, he helped found the Alliance of Black Jews and has recently become editor-at-large at The Forward, the nation's leading Jewish news outlet. But Robin is here today to talk about something much different than his impressive resume would suggest, an NPR story he created back in 2006 that I just had to hear more about. Today he will tell us the story of his time in high school in the 1970s when it was required in educational institutions across the nation that boys in gym class swim completely in the nude. Nope, it's not an urban legend, but America at large has certainly chosen to forget all about it. That is, until Robin and a handful of other men swapped their stories and reminded us all that bad dreams really do come true. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Robin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You are such an impressive person with an incredible resume. And yet I bring you here to talk about swimming naked in high school. So thank you for being willing. That's right. (laughs) You're quite welcome, Chelsea. Yes, of all the things I've done, this is what you have to talk to me about, so you go are, ahead. You are doing us a public service. Uh, so <laughs> I would love to start, and as our audience is going to find out, up until the 1970s, in some schools across, a, a good deal of schools, in fact, across the country, it was required of boys in middle and high school to swim naked. It was a gender segregated, so there weren't any women. Women had to wear bathing suits, which we'll get into, but you are one person who experienced this. So I would love for you to set the scene of where you lived, who you were in high school, what your life was like, and kind of what the world was like when people swam naked in high school. You are affirming to me that this was not my imagination or a bad dream. Uh, It really did happen. Yes, It did. (laughs) Right. Well, uh, I am from Chicago, uh, several generations. I am 66 years old. I went to high school. I entered Lane Technical High School in Chicago in the fall of 1971. And I would say the story actually really begins before 
I entered high school or anybody uh, entered high school at that time because when you graduated eighth grade, boy, you felt so grown up. And I remember as uh, in my case, particularly walking down this long block to the L in Chicago to go to high school, you felt like your legs were 10 feet long and you were so big. And then someone would say, you got to high school, yes. You got to swim naked? You're like, oh no, what? <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> right, a rude reminder of what you were in for. So yes, this was a rule, not just at my high school, but all Chicago public schools. And indeed, as you pointed out, schools across the country. And uh, well, first of all, the swimming was required and it was required for boys to swim naked. I'm going to give you an asterisk exactly what naked meant or didn't mean. And and girls had a separate swim class, thank you very much, and they were required to wear bathing suits. And they were particularly hokey or really silly-looking bathing suits that the girls would actually complain about. And we said, yeah, well, you know, I don't care how ridiculous it looks. It's better than what we're wearing. <laughs> so this is something you had to go through. There was also a rumor or belief or misconception amongst eighth graders entering freshmen in high school that if you took ROTC, you did not have to take swimming. So uh, many kids signed up for ROTC only to have the rude awakening that that wasn't true. <laughs> you still had to take swimming. And now you're in ROTC. That's right. And, so, and that meant yep. uh, that you had this uniform that was wonderful, light, nicely pressed, and you went to the locker room and you removed that, you know. So yeah. ROTC was indeed, at least in Chicago, a substitute for gym. But it was not a substitute for swimming. Swimming was once a week, and so they had four days of ROTC and one day of gym. Anyway, I was not one of those, although I could talk about my dear ROTC <laughs> friends later. And so this really was required. As I said, I went to school in the fall of 1971. I entered high school. This had been going on for decades. My school in particular... Lane Tech uh, had been all boys. It was a huge school, still is. It had, when I entered there, more than 5,000 students. And at one point, it actually had about 8,000. And it was uh, built as the technical high school, training you all kinds of stuff. It was the top school in the city, both academically and athletically. And, well, with 5,000 boys, yeah, it should be pretty good <laughs> if you can choose from all of those. So, so that was setting the stage. And to make my particular situation or my class's situation more interesting, I came in with the first co-ed class. So we had girls entering in the fall of 1971. 62 sophomores transferred in from other schools and 318 freshmen for a total of 386 girls and 5,300 boys. Oh, man. Brave girls. Wow. Frankly, they were incredible women. Many have gone on to some incredible achievements in life. And even if they, you know, went to just a normal and satisfactory life, that is amazing that yeah, they went truly. through that. And it's kind of amazing that uh, some of us boys went through the trauma of, uh, let's just put it this way, your odds of having a girlfriend as a freshman, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so that didn't happen. So, nude swimming. Yes, you got to your first day of uh, swim class, and you found out exactly what that meant. I said there was an asterisk on nude. In fact, it wasn't completely nude. We did have to wear a bathing cap. <laughs> that just makes it worse. Just more embarrassing. 
Right. And if that vision isn't uh, ridiculous enough, I'm going to throw in another uh, item, which is for our beginning class, for people like me, even though this is Chicago, we got Lake Michigan, it's beautiful, it's got a lot of water. You know, half of us, half, three quarters of us couldn't mm -hmm. swim. And I was one of those. And so if you were in the beginning class, they gave you an inner tube. So what a wonderful sight. <sighs> yep, there's about 50 kids in there, 14 years old, wearing a bathing cap, an inner tube, and nothing else. Oh, <laughs> it is like a bad dream. It was a bad dream. <laughs> right. And, you know, jumping ahead, as you said a little bit, uh, did this really happen? I mean, you know, after going through this rite of passage, and that really is what it felt like for the next, you know, 50 yeah. years, <laughs> I, this would come up in class discussions, but really to the rest of the world, and people would say, what? Are you kidding? And accuse us of making it up. So that is, you referred to my journalistic career. I did do a piece about this for National Public Radio, uh, what, more than a dozen years ago now, and you know, I'm certainly not the only one to talk about it, but that did give a sort of imprimatur to it that, you know what, this really happened. And as I said, it wasn't just in Chicago, it was across the country. And these are, again, 14-year-olds, again, a huge school. So the classes were, I don't know, 50 kids or something. Then if we didn't have enough indignities, there were seniors who had the jobs of being swim aides. And their job was to stand outside of the shower. So you took a shower before you got into that pool. And they would inspect you. And they would do that by taking your arm, taking your wrist, rubbing it, and seeing if any dirt appeared. I guarantee you, Chelsea, if I rub your arm long enough, I'll find something, okay? And so depending on whether or not they liked you or just felt like they were seniors who needed to torment uh, freshmen that day or hadn't had their quota of freshmen to torment, they would rub and find dirt and say, go back in. And there's nothing more pitiful. Now, mind you, everything I told you was pitiful. But beyond that, <laughs> even more pitiful, right, was this poor kid going back and forth, back and forth to the shower. I don't remember tears, but boy, any, you know, facial expression that gets as close oh, as you could to tears, gosh. you know, was was prevalent. But yeah, it's like when they're rubbing your arm, they're actually just rubbing dead skin, right? And then it starts to look <laughs> like dirt. So it's just straight I th I think up. After 50 years, you just saw, yeah, my question, what was that? <laughs> yeah, right. That's exactly, exactly what it was. <laughs> oh, that's certainly uh, somewhat abusive, I would say, uh, if we put it in our terms now. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you and your friends who are experiencing this, this is happening all over. This has obviously been happening in your school probably for decades, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Was it so normal that you and your friends just sort of accepted it? Or was there some questioning of like, why is this the norm here? All of the above. Uh, it was nor Well, it wasn't normal. <laughs> Let's start yes. with that right there. It was prevalent, but not normal. It was required. It was, yeah. And accept it in the sense that you except the firing squad, I suppose, right? You know what I mean? You know, yes. It doesn't mean I agree with this, but it's going to happen. If you were 14 years old, 13 years old, entering high school, this was going to happen, period. Wow. And people have called this, when I, when I was doing research, I started with your NPR piece, of course, and I was immediately like, I got to talk to this person about this. And the more I dug, the more I found, especially this thing that happened on a message board that started your 
kind of conversation with this situation that had happened to you and how it had also happened to others. So could you tell us about how that process went as you discovered your brethren? <laughs> I don't know what else to call them. Uh, my, right. My, uh, uh, my fellow inmates or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is the thing that accepted or however you want to put it, you know, this happened and you actually sort of put it out of your head. It became a rite of passage, and I'll speak more about that later on. But, you know, once you got through it, you got through it, uh, if you got through it, and then you went on. And then, uh, you know, if you were really a sadistic person, I suppose you became one of those seniors who were the swimming pool aides and you, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, imposed the rules on freshmen. But after you left high school, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, did we do that? Yeah, remember that? Ha, 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 you know, and you told stories about it. But as we told stories about it, as years progress, first of all, the practice did end, and we can get to exactly when that happened or approximately. And so, you know, more and more people began to ask us, are, are you serious? Are you? Did that happen? What? You're lying, you know. <laughs> and at some point, once this internet thing was invented, but not quite social media, early social media, there was and still is a platform called classmates.com. And what was interesting was, you would have discussions really amongst your classmates or, uh, or your school, and you didn't realize you actually were talking to the whole world. And that's, you know, like, again, proto-social media. Now, of course, yeah. you know that you say anything, the entire world is there. <laughs> <laughs> and so the discussion started of fellow Lane Tech graduates and these things that come up from time to time. There are other people who spoke on it on the radio. We had one of my classmates was a DJ on a local station in Chicago, and he'd bring it up every now and then. But the classmate discussion was the one where we really got into it, and someone saying, like, what was all that, and why did we do that? And again, the acceptance of it was you have to do it. And when you ask why, you were, you know, immediately shot down. <laughs> if you even yeah. got that far by whatever authorities or gym teachers there were. So we, we began to ask this, and that's what led me to my uh, national public radio piece, in which, of course, I remembered I was a journalist and sought to find an answer for it. I didn't. <laughs> the answer I got was from, again, my fellow classmates, and then as I found other people around the country who had experienced it, they had the same sort of thing. The best was my friend Dave Garrett from my Lane 75 class who said, I remember it has something to do with hygiene. And that was kind of a consistent thing, that boys were inherently well, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but whatever. <laughs> Boys were inherently dirty. Their gym shorts would be dirty or swimwear, or I don't know. And indeed, our gym shorts were dirty, but whatever. They could require <laughs> like clean shorts or clean swimwear. But that it was healthier for us and healthier for the pool if we didn't have clothing. And conversely, girls, it was supposed to be healthier for them to have clothing. So that's the only answer we had, or at least I was bopping around as to why we did it. Looking at it more, I don't know, experientially or historically, maybe not so much uh, a why or an answer, but some practices I found or uh, some historical evidence I found as to the origins, it seemed to date back to that sort of turn of the century 
time, turn of the 19th to 20th century, in which there was the health craze. There was, uh, unfortunately, was <laughs> coupled with eugenics and all kinds of horrible stuff mm-hmm. going on. There's the famous novel and book, The Road to Wellville, about all the spas and Kellogg's original, you know, healthy eating. And We're very uh, familiar with Kellogg's health <laughs> movement here. You can have a whole show about that, yes. Oh, we have. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and, and that's not to say anything about K-E-L-L-O-G-G, Kellogg's best for you each morning. See, I know the jingle. So, <laughs> but uh, but their, their roots are, you know, for better or for worse in this period. And at that time period, you certainly had men, older men, or middle-aged and older. And I particularly can tell you, in my head, it's a vision of old white men, rich white men, mm-hmm. who would skinny dip together. If you go to the top of the old Sheraton Hotel, it's a different hotel today, on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago on a magnificent mile, beautiful old building. There is a swimming pool up there, a fine, beautiful swimming pool. I believe, by the way, this was the uh, an original Shriners Temple. Mm. And uh, so it has, yeah, all that inlaid, you know, tile work and uh, just lovely. A swimming pool up there. I can't look at it without seeing a bunch of 50, 60, 70-year-old white rich men, <laughs> rich white men, <laughs> naked. <laughs> and so there was this... Um, you know, maybe that's where our rite of passage came from, but it was uh, a manly, a healthy thing to do, at least by the early 20th century vision or version of healthy, which now we've reevaluated. So part of it comes from that. And maybe also, pure speculation on my part, maybe that explains the gender spread too, you know, that you had it as something that men were doing amongst themselves as not what we would call today good old boys, but good old pals or something, in the brethren. And women were certainly not allowed in their pool in the first place. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, 
the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. And something I read about around this, this I tried to read a lot about naked swimming. And uh, <laughs> it seems like young men were expected not to be self-conscious of their body as a sign of manliness. Like you need to be strong in yourself and be able to take any uh, abuse and just be confident in that way where women were not expected to do that. There was a, a huge expectation of modesty and covering the body. So I think that's another element in addition to hygiene of, of why this kind of played out as it did. And also to move on a little bit, when I was researching this, I just so many times saw people say, this must be an urban legend. <laughs> and we deal in urban legends here, certainly. And I often love when people think something's an urban legend, but it's actually not because in some way we don't want to believe it. But this very much happened. And I think it's important to point out that the American Public Health Association required male public students to swim naked between 1926 all the way to 1962. Now, you went far beyond that 1962 <laughs> mark at your school. Wasn't my decision, yes. <laughs> right. Yeah, so what happened there and how did the practice come to an end? Right, so now that we have some idea how it started or at least when yes. it started, how do we get rid of this or how did it end? In 1971, believe me, it was alive and well. And there was, as I've said over and over again, as imprinted <laughs> in my brain, no getting around it. But actually, when we had that discussion on classmates, we seemed to find that somewhere around 1980 or the early 80s, it was discontinued at Lane Tech and uh, apparently other Chicago public schools. I live in Duluth. Minnesota, and I was in Duluth at the time that I did the NPR piece and found that it very much happened here in the public schools, too. Interestingly, happened in junior high as well as in high school, so uh, a little theme and variation there. And uh, I did call the Chicago Public Schools and asked them, you know, what uh, was the reason why and when was it discontinued. The person I got, spokesperson, did not speak very much on this, basically said, what? <laughs> cross-examined what I was asking, probably thought in retrospect I was something of a kook, even though I gave him all my journalistic yeah, credentials yeah. or whatever, and did not offer an answer whatsoever. Duluth, a smaller town, you know, more accessible. I actually knew the spokesperson, and she dug it up for us. And she found that indeed, although no record of why it was started in the first place, she was able to find the inn. So this is actually important because this uh, is documented. There is a document on this. Drum roll, please. And, well, here, I'll, I'll read it to you. It says, Be it hereby resolved that the Duluth School District include in its 1973-74 budget an amount that secures a sufficient number of tank suits for the boys' swimming program and that the practice of requiring boys to swim nude be discontinued immediately. And that was sponsored by a school board member named Mrs. Ruth Myers, who added in her uh, presentation of this proposal, having to swim in the nude when one does not have a choice is very objectionable. 
Well, thank you, Mrs. Ruth Myers. I mean, there it is. The hero like, of our you know. story, <laughs> Mrs. Ruth Myers. And there is indeed in Duluth a school named after her <laughs> today. It's, uh, and, really? And her, yeah, her colleague, uh, Mrs. Wilkins, is called the Myers-Wilkins Middle School. And uh, oh, it that. is deservedly named. I mean, what a you know brilliant but obvious <laughs> conclusion to come to, you know, that yeah. uh, you should not do this. So what's interesting, by the way, is that Duluth got rid of this while it was going strong at Lane Tech. So, you know, it took a while for it to uh, spread to the rest of the country. One more point that we said when we were reviewing this uh, amongst our friends and when I did that piece was today— if such a thing happened, it would be called a lawsuit. I mean, you can't do this, you know. Yes. You talk about trauma. Right. I mean, frankly, that whole scenario I painted of the seniors forcing you to go back to those showers is abusive. And there's no way that kind of behavior would be tolerated today. Uh, which, again, gets people asking, did that really happen? You must be making it up. And it's an urban legend. So, you know, here we are in a more comical sense with, you know, my ridiculous experience and those of my brethren. Yeah, no kidding. And then I would add, too, since I'm on the serious note right now, it wasn't comical for the kids who were truly affected by this abuse. You know, I said this was a rite of passage, and those of us who pass through the rite of passage, like anybody who makes it through basic training in the military, and I feel like I did, <laughs> even though I didn't join the military, the school was like that. I mean, it was very strict, and so there were many things that made you feel like you were in the military. You know, once you got past, it was like, well, I did it, you know, and you didn't think about those who didn't make it through. And so, yes, there were those that had to be affected by the trauma of this. You are also coming at this from a unique perspective as a black Jewish boy in your school. And in your NPR piece, I'm going to quote you back to you, which is always fun. But you wrote, Dave and I were both skinny black kids and members of the chess club at the mostly white school. But for once in America, race truly didn't matter. Everyone was naked before God and each other. And I just need more about that from you. <laughs> <laughs> so we did have our, uh, our share of racial incidents at the school, and I'm proud to say I did some uh, subversive work, if you will, to address that. Uh, I grew up, this is highly unusual, my mother was a civil rights activist, and she also had been a teacher in the Chicago public schools and taught at a school that had gang members, um, the original Vice Lords and Cobras, and she opened our house up to become a settlement house for Vice Lords and Cobras. So these were people hanging around our house, and they were my babysitters. I grew up in all seriousness, understanding gangs and gang members as legit, if you will, uh, outlets or organizations for boys to belong to something, at least back then. Maybe today it's more organized crime or whatever. But she was an artist, and she actually painted paintings of them showing their dignity. So I got to know these people as people. And they also studied gang dynamics, kind of interesting thing for six-year-olds to get involved yeah. in. And so it occurred to me that one way to deal with the racial problems at my school, again, smart school took kids from all over the city. And I also thought, for a smart school like this shouldn't be having racial issues. I thought if we could create a gang, and the requirement of the gang was you had to go to Lane, and it was called the Lane Lords. And it was not by racial lines. I could sign up the head of 
the uh, white kid, you know, gang members and the and head of the black gang bangers and try to get them in the same gang, and then they wouldn't be able to fight. And the other part of it was the gang was a parody of a gang. <laughs> we wrote our names all over the place. We had gang names. We had insignia. We did all kinds of graffiti, but we didn't fight. And someone once later told me there was a motorcycle gang that was exactly the same thing. They had chains, they had leather, backwards caps or whatever. They didn't have motorcycles. <laughs> so this is the kind of thing. In short, I did start the Lane Lords. Yes, I can admit later on the statute of limitations has expired. And <laughs> I did sign up the leaders of the uh, the black and the there were white greasers, if you will, gangbangers. And for the next four years, we did not have the di- racial disturbances. So I will wow. very much uh, take part of the credit for that. I digress. That's a bit of a rainbow coalition almost. A subversive one, as I yeah, said. Yeah, <laughs> you know, not quite, but <laughs> there's something there. There's echoes. And so part of it was that it was subversive. It was go- joining a gang. I mean, think about that. It, it's just crazy. I had like the number two academic kid in the school, you know, and she <laughs> later told me joining the Lane Lords was when you I felt first felt like I belong. You know, isn't that a sweet thing? And they all had everybody. Your initiation was you had to write your name uh, graffiti on some wall somewhere. So we were breaking the law, you know, left and right, yeah. but we weren't fighting. And we had an absurdist newspaper that we published but <laughs> my early journalism career. <laughs> I know, you didn't expect any of this, but the point of all this... I'm not surprised. <laughs> so the point of all this was, in all seriousness, uh, from what I grew up with, uh, with the gang settlement house in my home, my mother had told me that for adolescent boys, they're very tribal and they need to belong to something. And so this was a fulfillment of that. And if you had something that was slightly breaking the law with graffiti and things like that, that made it cooler, you know. So one last digression on that was one of my friends took a can of spray paint and we have a stadium at Lane Tech. And he sprayed on the stadium wall a big giant Lane Lords. Okay, you couldn't miss this thing. It was gigantic. Classic. And the school came, and they obscured the word Lords, and they left the word Lane as graffiti on the wall for, I kid you not, 30 years. Wow. And think about that. They gave us unofficial diplomatic recognition to what we were instilling, which was school spirit. And, you know, to, what's more organic than to have a graffiti lane, right? As opposed to an official one. Wow. And so that was kind of cool. All right. So all this racial stuff, the landlord started in my sophomore year. (laughs) Hadn't quite figured that out yet. No, there were no racial differences for once and probably the only place I can say in America that it didn't matter. When you're naked in that swimming pool, nobody cares what color you are. In fact, you're doing your best not to look at anybody. Thank you. Everybody's worried about themselves, not other people at that moment. And I would even say those seniors who are usually, I can't, I don't remember seeing any black seniors who were, you know, big, tall, white kids. I don't remember them punishing any black kids uh, disproportionately. Right. So I remember you telling me that you had a little triumph in that pool. Would you want to tell us about that? (laughs) So, yes, I was not amongst, by any stretch of imagination, the best. In fact, I was one of the worst. And at the year in, the coach very well knew that. 
And he designated three or four of us at the end of the year as some sort of guinea pigs. And he said, if any of these guys makes it across the width, forget about the length, the width of the pool, you all get a free swim. And so he lined us up. And the first kid, you know, probably very large, whatever, nothing about body shaming here, but I'm just painting a picture, jumps in a pool and promptly goes down to the bottom. And I don't think we ever saw him again. Okay, well, so much for him. And then the second one goes in and tries to dog paddle, you know, maybe a few feet and he goes down. And again, he's in that uh, secret passageway, whatever they do down there. And so finally, when it becomes my turn, somehow I knew this was going to happen. I prepared and jumped as far as I could, maybe almost halfway across the width of the pool, right? And then you know, paddled like crazy. Uh, I was a natural sinker, by the way. There's something about my physiology that I would just sink. People would say, here, here's floating. Do like me. And then, nope, didn't work, you know. So forget about kicking my legs, just didn't do anything. And I'm, you know, stroking vigorously with my arms and pulling myself. And I make it across width of the pool. The coach is stunned. He didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> he thought he knew all these kids. And I am being cheered, Washington, Washington, yay! And we, he has to make good on his promise, and I get a free, we get a free swim. So the next week, he does the exact same thing. Uh, I don't know if it's the same, by the way, other kids, because I don't know what happened to the first ones he jumped in. But sure. <laughs> again, we we didn't look at each other. We we didn't study each other at all, you know. So uh, so he did it again. The first two or three guys, you know, don't make it, and finally uh, it's Washington, Washington. Come on, he can do it. And you hear people saying, "Wait, didn't he? Shut up, shut up." <laughs> and so I do exactly the same thing, and then Coach Valentine. That was his name. And yes, he died on February 14th, a few years later. Whoa. Right. <laughs> Coach Valentine goes, uh, hey, what? And well, he has to make good because he had promised. And so there were two free swims based on my one athletic exploit. The other reason I think that a lot of this has been, you know, reinterpreted as urban legend is there were indeed urban legends connected to this. I mean, as you're sitting there, or sitting there, as you're going through life for years afterwards trying to figure out, what the hell was that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You start comparing stories and everything. And so you heard stories of various things that happened in the pool, like the one I just said. I'm sure people are telling Mm -hmm. the Washington, Washington story. There's this one guy, you wouldn't believe it. Jumps in, you know, <laughs> so you know, uh, and, and hey, more power to it. You know, I'll autograph copies of a book or something if somebody <laughs> wants to write that. You know, but one of the stories that I heard definitely at Lane, but then when I did the NPR piece, I heard it in Duluth and I heard it elsewhere, was that there was some kid doing the backstroke with his little inner tube and his, his bathing cap, and he was, shall we say, excited, perhaps of a memory of a date he had or something like that. Sure. Uh, again. Not likely at Lane because nobody had a date, you know. So, uh, but whatever. A typical he was, high school boy. Right. He was a typical high school boy, and, you know, having happened to him physiologically, what happens yes. to 14 year old boys at times? How's this for the epitome of not talking about what we 
we're talking about. So, <laughs> uh, so he's doing this backstroke, and there was a long pole that Coach Valentine and the other coaches would use to literally fish you out of the water. It had kind of a hook at the end. And God. he took the pole and swatted the kid on the midsection saying, get that periscope down. Oh, my God. Well, I heard that, you know, like anything, maybe maybe some names attached to it or whatever, but certainly it happened to my friend's class or a third period or whatever. But I I heard that in Duluth, too, and I heard that elsewhere. And so, yeah, I'm not so sure that happened. Or, conversely, it happened all the time, you know. Wow. You know, maybe maybe it was in the gym teacher's manual, you know, section 4A, point B. If kid has, you know, yeah. issue going on, please use Poe, you know. So. I, I mean, from everything we've heard, it's not impossible. <laughs> it's not, no. So it's completely believable. But the other part was, and this was very, very germane to Lane Tech, again, we had the uh, coeducational experience, this great experiment. Lane turning coed was a huge, huge deal. Uh, it was, you know, the bastion of Mayo excellence. And you're going to let girls in there? There's a whole controversy about it. There was yeah. actually a walkout the year before of students who didn't want it, about a 1,000 of those 5,000. And they chanted, they walked all the way down four miles to the Chicago Board of Education headquarters, chanting, we don't want no broads. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yep, that that was the class before me. Nope, I was not part of that. I may have been part of other walkouts, but we won't talk about that. So, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was a big deal. And there were parents who didn't want girls going there and all kinds of stuff. So the girls show up. What did they do? Did they take swimming? Well, certainly, again, no co-ed swimming classes anyway. But the locker rooms had not been configured in this gigantic building. And there was no way to have a separate female locker room. And plus a transition between classes. You couldn't have a first period swim be a boys' class and second period be girls' class and, you know, make sure everybody was out of the locker room right, no or, overlap. or even have a separate locker room and make sure nobody's coming in from one door to the other. I mean, it would have been impossible. So the only time I understand in the history of the Chicago Public Schools since swimming was required, uh, the girls who went to Lane from 1971 to at least when I graduated, 75, were exempt from swimming. Oh. And they didn't take it at all. But there were, you know, girls who were messengers, official aides or whatever, who had to deliver messages. And so every once in a while, urban legend or not, this one I have not stood up one way or the other, you would hear stories of a girl had to take something to Coach Valentine. Okay. <laughs> I mean, whose idea was that to say, hey, you know, let's have uh, Janie take this message, you know? Get your inner tube ready. Janie's coming. <laughs> right. But there were times, and I can attest to this, that the doorway to the swimming pool was, you know, double doors, and for a few seconds, they would both be open. Not propped open, God forbid, but, you know, open because somebody came in and somebody else was going out. And so, even at a brief second like that, you were in the pool and you were saying, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is so stressful. Right. So some of that, yes, was clearly urban legend. Some of it was urban legend, but believable. And some of it actually did happen. Hearing this is absolutely horrifying. And even when I was growing up, I remember going into middle school, the fear was you have to take a shower in front of everyone naked. And I was 
so nervous about that all summer. I thought about it. And leading up to those days, I just, you know, my friends and I were like, oh, we're going to have to do this. You know, I'm queer. So it's like double scary. <laughs> it's a complicated situation. I get there. It's not true. Practice ended a while ago. Instead, we're just sweaty the rest of the day. And I was fine with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was really a, a scary thing. More after this. And now, back to the show. If anything, I mean, we obviously did have to take showers. Every gym class had showers afterwards. And I assume later on when the girls had their, they had their own gym. So at a certain point, I'm sure they had their showers too. Mm -hmm. You know, so showering, I, I, I never even thought was showering in. Obviously, sports teams shower today. I've covered, actually, NFL games for the Boston Herald, and I've been in the locker room, and yeah, they do take showers in the locker room. That's yeah, what they do, sure. you know? And and I have seen the female reporters there. I uh, My paper, actually, was one of the pioneers in that whole access issue. And uh, I'll just say everybody behaves like a professional and a grown-up. But I do have to say it is a little weird, interesting. You mentioned, you know, uh, uh, gender and, and queer. I actually think that may have been part of the origin of this. If we go back to those men and their pools at the top of the, uh, you know, now hotel and, and Shriners, you know, at, uh -huh. uh, people were not as open, obviously, about LGBT issues then as they are today. So maybe some of it was related to that. And I'm certainly not being judgmental one way or the other. But, you know, our attitudes today, our practices today, just I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, social. <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, and I guess what's important is not to impose today's standards on the past, you know? Absolutely. So when you look at this and you try to figure out motivations, you have to look at it from the time and, you know, what the ethos were of that day. I am not saying, and got me another serious note, uh, because mm -hmm. I've written so much about uh, race and religion and justice and civil rights and all. I'm not saying, therefore, so-and-so was a product of their time, right. and it doesn't matter what they did. If you enslaved people or otherwise enforce, you know, the humilities or indeed the violence of lynching or Jim Crow or anything like that, there's no product of your time that excuses that. And I'm proud to say my mother was one who, as a uh, non-black Jewish woman, she was born in 1926, uh, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And in the 40s, as a high school kid, she was protesting segregated theaters, you know? Yeah. And so she was not a product of her time because she was far ahead of her time, you know? Right. So the fact that she could see injustice as a kid uh, at that time uh, sort of counters anyone who says, well, I didn't do anything because nobody did anything. Not true. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm not going to expect that somebody would have led a march or parade or, you know, put themselves on the front line when nobody else was doing it. My mother, I now know, was an anomaly. My whole family, I learned later on, was an anomaly. The activities that, well, did I say that I had gang members at my babysitters? Yeah. I, I think that was an anomaly. So. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> they were pretty good. Oh, man. Well, 
I would love to ask you about one more thing, and that is what we talked about in our previous episode, and that is the streaking craze of 1974, <laughs> in which you were still in high school. And the streaking craze, when we talk about that compared to this um, naked swimming situation happening in high schools and also in colleges as well, is that on one hand, you are choosing to be naked and flaunting that throughout you know the campus whereas you're being forced to do something as a requirement in your school which right. are two very very different things as mrs ruth myers pointed out yes right <laughs> yes as our as our hero our show hero um <laughs> so I would love to hear your experience with streaking in 1974 and beyond. My experience witnessing streaking, he said yes, carefully. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> I did. Let's be clear. As I'm admitting all these behaviors and everything and, and saying as the statute of limitations passed, I did not engage in public nudity. Thing. Well, I guess I did. That was called swimming class, but that was different. <laughs> yes. So uh, I did not engage in the individual. But I don't know how you parse this. Okay. I did not streak. How about that? <laughs> but we did have streakers uh, at Lane Tech, and I distinctly remember one in the uh, cafeteria. We had in this huge school, I would say, uh, you know, 800,000 kids in the cafeteria at one time. We had several different lunch periods, but you still ended up with an awful lot, at least 500. And, you know, kid goes running through, and what was that? Hey! <laughs> I think I have to put a little context on this that. You've seen those scenes from prison movies where, you know, it's the, the cafeteria and they take the tin cup and they start banging on the table. Yes. Hey, yes. we want one. We want one. Whatever it is that they want. Yes. You know? And so that was laying on a good day. Okay. <laughs> so if I feel like I had a military experience, I feel like I had a prison yeah, experience okay. I got it, too. Got it. In fact, uh, you know, as sort of the urban legend mixes in with the real one, I almost feel like I had tin, a tin cup, but that couldn't have been true. Uh, although I'm not sure the food was much better than prison food, I can certainly tell you that. Uh, so with that setting, uh, when the streaker came through, that basically was it. You, you hear a little first tittering and it gathers momentum and then it's like, hey, hey, hey. The other thing with the male dominance was everything was, hey, hey, hey. You, know, you were trying to show your masculinity as you were shouting this out. So yeah, he went through and we all made loud noises and that was that. I have a vague memory. Now you're making me wonder about everything I remember, but that one went through our stadium during a football game or something. I didn't witness it, so let's just leave that as a vague memory of, of may have and probably did happen. It was probably just that last year, 74, 75, I distinctly remember. <laughs> I'll give Gerald Ford the uh, credit for it because I remember him being president when this was going on. But... <laughs> <laughs> At our 10-year reunion for my class, so in 1985, I was the chair of the reunion committee, and this was not just my decision. We decided to give a flavor of the good old days by hiring a streaker to go through our dinner at the fancy hotel. And we were able to do one. We got it from some performance thing, you know, jugglers, clowns, uh, whatever. And Streakers. Well, it didn't say that. They're like, we'll do it. But, you know, you could hire, you know, I mean, I think this sort of encapsulates what we're talking about. This is 1985 I'm talking about. And I don't know if you could do this today. You could do the research on it and do a show on it. But can you today 
hire a stripper to jump out of a cake. That was a thing, right? I think you can still do that. I think you can, but I have no idea where to start, nor do I really want to know, right? And so, Just Google it. <laughs> yeah, you're right, yeah. So, but in, in the 60s, I mean, the Mad Men era, right? You certainly had that. Yeah. And in the 70s, you know. So by 1985, I don't think we looked up strippers or anything like that. I think uh, I kind of remember that it was like clowns and performers and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then once we got the company on the phone, we said, can we get a streaker or can, you know, can somebody streak? And they said, well, check and got back to us. And indeed, it was a young man who did. What was the reaction from everybody? It it, it was okay. We didn't. I was involved in uh, uh, most of the other uh, reunions, and uh, they've been great experiences. And but we didn't. We never did it again <laughs> because you know we we actually a very responsible reunion. Actually had a small surplus, and so we looked at everything with a cost benefit square. And I would say, nah, not worth it. Cut it. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it really it was cool, but. One of the things was it, it was actually really did replicate what we experienced because one of the things about streaking was, again, someone's going through even a large lunchroom cafeteria. Someone's going through a large hotel banquet hall or, or you know dining hall, right? They have to get through one third of it before anyone even notices, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the whole point is you're in constant motion. That's why no one could identify who these people were. Yep. Some of, oh, oh, at Lane, I do recall, and I don't know if it's a lunchroom guy or a football stadium guy or whatever, but at least one of them wore a ski mask. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. So that was the point. The person we hired in 85 did not wear a ski mask, but it didn't matter. Again, by the time you noticed something was happening, uh, he was a one-third gone. Yeah. So, you know, that was uh, a part of it. The other part of it was, of course— yeah, things that become, you know, legends that start taking on lives of their own. There were people who were suggesting there were female streakers at Lane or, oh, you know, remember that time that? No, no, there were no girls streaking at Lane. Are, are you kidding? <laughs> this is, yeah, you know, it's bad. I mean, the experiences they had just walking in the building, I literally mean that. Walking in that front day, there's, there's pictures of one of the main doorways to the building and a 14-year-old girl walking up with all these seniors and everybody around, the same kids who said, we don't want no broads, you know? Uh, Can you imagine that? No. And so, no, no no way in the world were there female streakers at Lane. I will make an aside, by the way, to say that the women at Lane, you know, led to, frankly, uh, not long ago, just last year, one of the high points of my life, uh, one of the greatest honors, which was we had a celebration of 50 years of women at Lane Tech Again, a major accomplishment, you know, a major advancement. Title IX was just happening at this time, and obviously women's liberation and all kinds of things. So this was all part of that. There were other reasons why it happened, too. So as we marked this, I was invited to be the speaker on behalf of the 5,300 boys. And I have to say that was one of the biggest honors of my life. And, you know, we looked upon, and I still do, our uh, sistren as real heroes. And um, some of them have made, you know, major accomplishments. Others, just being here, that's an accomplishment of which we're very proud. One of them, by the way, Earthring Cousin, uh, became head of the World Food Program. You know, that's 
pretty big, let alone she was a U.S. ambassador. Wow, yeah, I'd say that's pretty big. And I also know of another woman who graduated from your class that you have mentioned to me who went into Hallmark movies. Is that right? Another topic that we recently covered? Aisha Mertigal Francis today was uh, one of my classmates, uh, along with Earthrend, both class of 75. And she went on into a career in uh, filmmaking. And she is now an executive at Hallmark. She oversees the entire productions of movies. Interestingly, she says their network executives do not have their names on it. So I've looked for her name and I don't, uh, don't see it. And I mean, they're way up the food chain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we just had an article that I was, again, privileged to write about her in our uh, Lane Alumni magazine last year. And at that point, she had had 59 films to her credit. She says, Lane Tech's education, which very much included critical thinking and analyses, was very much a part of what she uses in creating these films. So so all of the above, everything we talked about, not nude swimming, because <laughs> she didn't have to do that. Although one of her best friends was a messenger, so, you know, maybe well, that was a she saw, yeah. Right, a young woman who went to the gym. So, But I couldn't be prouder of Aisha. And again, it speaks to where we went, the time we went. And I have to say, the experience that she had in dealing with the 5,000 boys entering the first day with these gigantic seniors. Wow. Well, thank you, Aisha, for giving us the gift of the Hallmark formula that we all love so much. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so just to kind of wrap up our conversation here, is there anything that you would like to say about your experience or any thoughts you'd like to leave us with? You know, it's sort of a double-edged sword that on the one hand... Really, can't, am I actually saying this fifty odd years later? You kind of, you kind of appreciate having gone through the experience. I mean, you know, it's crazy saying that, right? I am just hesitating as I am. Well, and you know, for different people, it was. That's what I ended up reading. It was just so different for each person. Some people have this lasting traumatic feeling, and other people feel like right. it was a rite of passage for them. And it is something we can't imagine today in our context, but 1971. Nor shall it be allowed, thank you. No, yes, we're right. not going back to that to be certain right but you know hearing your experience has been so interesting and uh i really appreciate you coming on the show and talking about what apparently you are the go-to expert for nude swimming in high school (laughs) (laughs) for better for worse i had no idea when i wrote that uh and uh, i did that commentary that uh, it would be following me for the next 20 odd years but so be it. I'm sure it'll keep going, too. (laughs) Well, thanks again for being here and uh, hope to have you back someday. Thank you, Chelsea. This was American Hysteria. To learn more about Robin Washington's work and what he's up to, head to RobinWashington.com. If you'd like to get early ad-free episodes as well as bonus content, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. This includes access to our new close friends only Instagram in which you can come down the bizarre research rabbit holes with me. 
and learn all about what's coming up before everyone else. You can also get access to Hysteria Home Companion, the extra podcast that producer Miranda and I make with all the content from the cutting room floor of the previous topic, all the stories that were not included. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. This episode was edited by Miranda Zickler with sound design by Clear Camo Studios and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening to this shocking revelation, and I hope you have a great week.